Welcome to the Latin MedTech Leaders Podcast. This is a weekly conversation with MedTech leaders who have succeeded in Latin America. Today, our guest is Guy Binograd, CEO and co-founder of BioT, the first and leading medical IoT cloud platform designed to enable medical device vendors to fully realize the potential of the data collected by their devices. Guy is a seasoned high-tech executive and an expert software architect of cloud platforms for medical devices. Guy is an industry leader, a popular speaker, and the organizer of the meetup group Smart IOMT Product Experts of Israel. Guy, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you so much again for joining the call and for accepting my invitation to speak. I went to your website, your company's website, and I kind of got an idea of what you guys do. So I'm very intrigued with the technology that you have and how that fits into the whole UNDR situation. So um, please tell me a little bit about it and let's see if we can tackle the question. About IoT, you mean? Yes, and your technology. Sure. I'm very intrigued yeah. on how yeah. that works. <laughs> well, IoT is technology that is aiming medical device vendors, the more innovative companies that see the vision of, you know, those buzzwords like IOMT, Internet of Medical Things, or a home hospital, hospital at home, mm. precision medicine, any kind of medical value that benefits from connectivity of a medical device cloud to mobile or web applications, remote monitoring, remote diagnostics, stuff like that. What's happening the major, the established uh, medical device vendors know they need to move to be connected medical devices, but actually they don't have the expertise. They are mainly focused on, you know, the medical side and uh, physics yeah. or chemistry or biology or uh, electro-optics and stuff like that that they need for their device. And they are very far from understanding the IoT world and the cloud uh, development and the mobile development and how to regulate it all uh, with all the FDA cybersecurity guidelines uh, that's go around and HIPAA and stuff like that. So uh, IoT is a great shortcut for them. Uh, hmm. Our platform implements all this cloud and connectivity and mobile uh, uh, side of things. Uh, lots of uh, features that uh, they can use just out of the box and minimize the time they spend on creating their own specific uh, solution. So, of course, there is customization and integration sure. between the platform and the device, but the heavy lifting is already done for them by BioT. Fantastic. Interesting. And are you regulated? I mean, do you have to comply with regulations? Indirectly, because BioT is a software tool and a software component in a larger system that is includes the device, and uh, some uh, and the customization and integration code on top of BioT. So the whole system, which is owned by the medical device vendor, has to be regulated. But we provide the vendor with all the necessary documentation in order to uh, pass the regulations, to pass the audits on the cloud side and on the mobile side. And of course, we also uh, commit to them, sign. Uh, do you know what a BAA is? No. You know HIPAA? Yes, of course. Yeah. HIPAA accepts the fact that a medical device vendor is not solely responsible for all the security and privacy if he works with subcontractors and suppliers. 
So there is this uh, chain of BAAs, business associate agreements. Okay. The supplier signs with the vendor and then he uh, takes the liability and responsibility if something happens in his domain. So we provide this liability for them uh, and they can rely on us and uh, not be exposed if something happens uh, in the privacy that is, you know, in our part. Hmm. Fascinating. Interesting. All right. Great. Thank you for that introduction of your technology. So um, the future implementation of the UMDR has increased the barriers to entry in the European Union. And apparently more medtech companies are looking to other alternative markets. For example, the U.S., Asia, Latin America to first initiate the commercial activities. So these are some of the questions that come to mind around the topic. In light of the rigorosity of the UMDR, are U.S. medtech companies in your opinion still considering the EU as the first commercial market before they seek the approval? Okay, first, just to be on the same page, uh, BioT and myself is an Israeli company, and I can mainly share the point of view of Israeli medtech companies. So first, I'll share that the Israeli medtech companies consider most of them, not all of them, consider the U.S. market as the first one and EU as the second one. Okay. Um, not the other way around. I think, as you imply, that uh, most companies you know first want to market in the EU before they want to market in the U.S. That used to be the paradigm or the way to go uh, years ago. Now things are shifting a little bit. Okay. What I say mainly is the... Uh, first to go to FDA and then go to EU. But actually, maybe it's 50-50 coming to think about it. I know many vendors who first go to get a CE mark and only then go to the FDA. Okay, so first, I think that the, the EU MDR did not change this. Uh, the EU market uh, economic power is still uh, the second in the world, first, second. So regardless of uh, being a bit more rigorous, it is still the target because of the potential. But I would like to say another thing from our understanding of the EU MDR. We embrace it. We think uh, it is actually easier in some ways because the predecessor of the MDR was the MDD. You know about it, yes. the directives? Mm -hmm. Yes. And the meaning of the EU directives was that each country can supplement it and override it with its own regulation. The MDR, where the MDR is not a directive, it's a regulation. So once you comply to it, you are already good to go with all Europe. Hmm. Whereas before that, with MDD, still companies had to go state by state, country by country, hmm. and hmm. apply to its own notified bodies in order to gain the regulation. So from that respect, it's easier. Now, the EU became easier than it was before. Interesting insight. <laughs> Another point is that we really appreciate what the MDR is trying to do. From our perspective, it is a pioneer in the world. It is really drawing the future for efficacy and safety of medical devices. Guess pharma as well. For example, they have, they have a requirement for uh, clinical evidence. It is called the PMCF. It's an acronym for post-market clinical follow-up. Okay? What it means that the medical device companies cannot just settle with doing a clinical trial and then go to market. 
they have to continue monitoring their drugs, their devices when they are in the market, get the data from them and make sure that they are as effective as uh, they thought they, they were. Sure. And I think that making them do it is something that will make the devices much better and more effective and advanced medicine faster mm. than it used to be. Yes, good point. So to summarize, EUMDR is the new line of excellence, and I really hope that all the world will follow these guidelines. Interesting. Okay. Okay. All right. So question number two, Guy, is if yours or a company that is a client of yours is a medical device design, development, and commercialization company, what's been their company experience or what's been the impact uh, of the EUMDR on them? Can you cite well, a specific uh, case? Well, I'm sure you know that uh, the UMDR is not yet effective. It's only going to happen in uh, more than a year, in May 2020. Yes. So it's everybody's talking about it, but it's too new to share any experience with it. But you can ask me that in uh, six months from now, maybe my answer will be different. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's fine. Do you know of companies, by the way, that already changed the product for the UMDR? Yes, I've heard about, I've been having interviews like this for about a month and a half, and I hear cases about companies that are already uh, shifting their gears, uh, hiring more people, getting new registration under the new MDR instead of the old one. But there's been some, some little changes. I think what you say is that they are learning about it, like we do. Yeah, Still they're getting no... prepared. Okay. What about question number three? How has the EUMDR affected the company or a company that's a client of yours commercialization strategy? Have you heard about a case uh, where a company has said, forget about Europe or we're going to change uh, the way we're going to go to market like this or like that? From that perspective, as I said, uh, we see it as a new standard of excellence and uh, the companies who want to avoid it, I think they don't really have a future. For us, Let's say that the MDR affected in a good way. As I explained earlier, we are dealing with the IOMT. And this requirement of the post-market clinical follow-up goes... Uh, IOMT is a, a great solution for that because the devices can just send data to the cloud and the vendor can immediately see what's happening with their device, how much they are diagnosing and uh, stuff like that and the quality and their maintenance, where uh, without IOMT, the only other way would be to ask patients to come for visits from time to time in order to learn if the device is helping them. So providing the patient an application and a connected device is really a good solution to comply with EUMDR. So this is also something of commercialization change. It pushes more companies to create connected devices. Very interesting. I guess it's very good for your business. I mean, for your business model. The UMDR uh, is pushing your business model to be more successful. Actually, the regulatory world everywhere, uh, not only in the EU, in the US as well, for they have a value-based reimbursement uh, strategy now in the US. You get paid, the hospital, the caregiver get paid only when they really treated you, not for every visit you visit them. So this is also a great push for, you know, to give you devices, wearables that can monitor you and, and alert 
when you are starting, you know, to deteriorate and not when you are exhausted totally and must yeah. go to uh, the hospital. Yes. So, yeah, there's a lot of push from all kinds of laws and regulations towards medical connectivity, I'd say. Very good. Okay. So number four, Guy, are medtech companies considering now other alternative markets to the EU where they can start generating revenue faster? If so, do you think Latin America is one of those markets? As I say, I don't think it changed anything. They're not running away from the EU because of that. Got it. Okay. Number five. What are your thoughts on early-stage clinical trials or selling medical devices in Latin America? Okay, first, some of our customers do sell in Latin America. I'll connect it to the Pacific Alliance. I think this initiative is a great move towards uh, increasing the appeal of selling to Latin America because really, for a device vendor, it's a nightmare to go to each of the countries yes. and study the regulations of each of them. So having one, like the MDR in the EU, having one that covers many countries is great, important initiative. Yes, fantastic. Have you had practical experience yourself with early stage clinical trials or certain medical devices in Latin America? No, only in the EU and the US. Oh, okay, okay. What's your general perception of the region, Guy? I mean, when I say Latin America, what comes to mind? Is it a positive feeling, a negative feeling? What do you think about the region as a market for for medical technologies? I have to say that not positive. Hmm. Why is that? I think it's mainly the currency fluctuations. Hmm. Uh, But that's only me. I don't know if... Sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's the idea. You give me your perception. That's exactly what I want to hear. (laughs) Your honest uh, thoughts about the region. Anything else on that? When I said about the sentiment I'm feeling is about South America, I don't feel the same about uh, Mexico, Colombia. Oh, I no. see. You, you, you meant the, the southern corn, uh, corn, uh, cone, I'm sorry, C-O-N-E, the, southern yeah, corn. Yeah, but okay. I have to say that Chile stands out as different, more like a European country. Yes, Chile is a very forward-looking country. And if you allow me, I'll give you a little bit of background about the... Pacific Alliance, guys, so you kind of yeah. understand the context about it. Yeah. The Pacific Alliance started in 2011. And the whole idea was to take the four most competitive economies of the region. I'm saying competitive, not largest. Competitive, I mean economies that are very forward-looking, economies that are aligning themselves with policies of international standards. For example, four of these countries are members or members to be, in the case of Peru, of the OECD, which is the Organization for Economic Development yeah. and Cooperation. I was, I was going to comment about Peru. I'm, I'm surprised it's there. Yes, but Peru is a very forward-looking country. Actually, it's one of the top performing economies in Latin America. It has opened its doors and is aligning itself with the wealthy countries of the OECD. Israel is part of it, the U.S. What uh, is the GDP of Peru? I don't recall. But it's growing at around, I was just reading about it a couple of days ago, it's growing at around 4-5% a year. 
So it's really, really good. Whereas Colombia is growing about 3.5, 4, something like that. So Peru is, is one of the top performing economies uh, based on their GDP growth. So the idea is to have these four countries become a trade bloc. Because the other trade blocs in the region, like Mercosur, which is Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay, and I believe also Paraguay, and Chile as well, that is not really working well. There's another trade bloc called the Andean Pact, uh, which are the Indian countries, of course, Colombia, Venezuela, Peru, Bolivia, Ecuador. That didn't go well. I mean, that hasn't really materialized. However, uh, Pacific Alliance uh, seems to be uh, something that is gaining traction, and it looks like it will become a reality. It is already working. They are already putting together all the pieces, and the regulatory piece is a big part of it. So that's why uh, I think there's uh, a lot of hope for this. By the way, the GDP per capita of Chile is more than 15,000. Yeah, imagine. Yeah, Chile is a very good country, economically speaking, yeah. All right, guys. So thank you so much. Unless you have anything else to add, I'd like to conclude the interview here. I'd like just, to thank you for your participation and your insights. I mean, very uh, interesting. Okay. Have a thank great, you, Julio. If there's anything I can do to help you in any way, shape, or form in Latin America, please let me know. Okay, great. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Take care.